Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and today we're focused on the week of August 24th. But let's pause for one quick programming note. Hey, big thanks to our listeners in Ireland as this podcast recently hit the business podcast leadership charts in that beautiful country. That's big news for a new podcast, any podcast. To our listeners, we invite you to join us by searching for This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe so you don't miss a single thing. And for that, we are greatly appreciative. Thanks so much for listening. Now back to the week of August 24th in business history. Today, we're gonna be sharing a variety of big things that took place this week in history across the business world, especially focusing on big tech, a journalism pioneer, the automotive world, and more. That's what we're gonna focus on today on this week in business history, powered by our team here at Supply Chain Now. Let's start with technology that changed the world, even if many folks don't necessarily realize it now or not. On August 24th, 1995, Microsoft released Windows 95 to the retail world. But to truly appreciate it, you must think back at the environment in 1995. The World Trade Organization had just been established. Salt Lake City had just been selected to host the 2002 Winter Olympics. The space shuttle Atlantis docks with the Russian Mir space station for the first time. I could be found in uniform as I was on active duty with the United States Air Force and stationed at Shaw Air Force Base in Sumter, South Carolina as a data analyst. And when I think back to the computers we had at our disposal to crunch our numbers and build our reports, wow, how did we get anything done? We had an army of computing power, using that term very loosely, that included 386s and 486s. But what's important to note about 1995, an era long before smartphones existed, was that many folks had no idea as to how to use a computer, much less effectively. Windows 95 helped to make computing, especially home computing, more approachable for the masses. Let's look at some of the aspects that helped make Windows 95 forever changed the game. The start button, remember that? You could easily navigate throughout the computer by clicking on the start button. Interestingly enough, you also shut the PC down by first clicking on the start button. The start button was gold for Microsoft's marketing gurus, and they kicked off a campaign that used the Rolling Stones' Start Me Up as a theme. In fact, according to retired Microsoft COO Bob Herbold, 
The company paid the Stones $3 million to use the well-known tune for that campaign. Then the taskbar. For the first time, PC users could see all open applications at a simple glance. Now that helped users multitask, which was one of the major themes in the development of Windows 95. In fact, as I sit here recording this podcast, I have no less than 10 applications and windows open, a more user-friendly desktop, including file shortcuts for the first time. Getting on the internet became a whole lot easier than ever before with Windows 95, especially for those users new to the internet. And let's face it, that was most of the world in 1995. Plug and play functionality, the device manager, all built into Windows 95. With all of these features and plenty of others in mind, it's been said that Windows 95 helped pave the way for the information age. Now to be fair, Microsoft's primary rival, Apple, had a heyday back in 1995. Steve Jobs said, quote, they copied the original Mac with Windows 95, end quote. A big common saying amongst the Apple community was Windows 95 equals Macintosh 88. But Bill Gates and company probably had the last laugh as CNET reported figures from the International Data Corporation that in 1998, Windows 95 accounted for 57.4% of the desktop operating system market. In fact, Windows 95 would continue to outsell its replacement, Windows 98, as late as 1999. Let's move to the news industry with our second story here on This Week in Business History. On August 29, 1962, Malvin Russell Good would become the first African-American news correspondent for a major television network. This broadcast journalism pioneer was born on February 13, 1908 in White Plains, Virginia. But in the next couple of years, the family would move to Homestead, Pennsylvania, a town about seven miles southeast of Pittsburgh. Good would be in high school when he began working at a U.S. steel plant in Homestead. His father had worked there, and Good would remain employed at the plant until after he graduated from the University of Pittsburgh in 1931. After finally leaving U.S. Steel, Good would spend time in a variety of positions. But in 1948, at the age of 40, Malvin Russell Good would begin his legendary career in journalism. At the time, the Pittsburgh Courier was one of the largest black newspapers in the country, and the paper offered Good the opportunity to become a reporter. His great work as a reporter would lead to Good becoming a radio broadcaster with KQV, an AM radio station in Pittsburgh, one of the oldest radio stations here in the U.S., in fact. Television station WHOD then came calling for the talented journalist. Malvin Russell Good would also host a brief daily news show on WHOD. By 1952, Good would be promoted to WHOD's news director. In only four short years, Good had made a huge impact in the news industry, but truly, he was only getting started. Before he left WHOD for ABC Television News in 1962, Malvin Russell Good would already be named as the first African-American member of the National Association of Radio and Television News Directors. It's been reported that this groundbreaking hire that ABC News would make would be driven by the feedback from another groundbreaking pioneer. Jackie Robinson, 
who had famously broken Major League Baseball's color barrier in 1947, well, he was frustrated by the lack of people of color in journalism. ABC News would listen to his feedback and would hire Malvin Russell Good over 40 other candidates. In his first major story, Good would earn respect from across the journalism world as he covered the Cuban Missile Crisis. In 1963, Good would teach journalism abroad in Nigeria, Tanzania, and Ethiopia. He'd go on to cover the assassinations of both Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Malvin Russell Good would retire from ABC News in 1973, but would continue working in the industry in a variety of roles. He served as president of the United Nations Correspondents Association. Good was a member of the 100 Black Men of America in New York. He'd continue working for the National Black Network throughout the 1980s. In 1990, Malvin Russell Good would be inducted into the National Association of Black Journalists Hall of Fame. What a remarkable career by a remarkable man, a true pioneer. Let's see what else took place in this week in business history for the week of August 24th. Born on August 27th, 1877, was Charles Stuart Rolls. From London, Rolls would go on to attend Eton College. There, he gained a nickname, Dirty Rolls, which stemmed from his burgeoning interest in engines. Rolls would be one of the first car owners in Cambridge, Great Britain. And with his father's financial help, Rolls would open one of the first car dealerships in the country. Charles Stuart Rolls would join a variety of industry associations related to automobiles, including the Royal Automobile Club. It was there where Charles Stuart Rolls would meet Henry Royce, a meeting that certainly would change the automotive world. By 1906, Rolls and Royce would formalize a partnership and establish Rolls-Royce Limited. For Rolls, though, his involvement would be brief. In addition to his passion for automobiles, Rolls had a passion for aviation. Rolls would die in an air crash in 1910 at the age of 32. The tail of the Wright Flyer that he was piloting would break off. Charles Stuart Rolls would die in the crash, becoming the first powered aviation fatality in the United Kingdom. But Rolls-Royce Limited would live on and prosper until about 1971. After liquidation, transfers, and restructuring, Rolls-Royce Holdings today is a public company with customers in more than 150 countries and just under $20 billion in revenue in 2019. On August 28, 1830, one of the most peculiar races in world history would be held. The two competitors would be Tom Thumb, the first American-built steam locomotive to operate on a common carrier railroad, which was owned by Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, by the way, B&O Railroad, which is now part of CSX. And just who would this newfangled technology race? A horse-drawn car. That's right. Mechanical horsepower versus actual horsepower. And who would win, you ask? Well, in the short term, the horse, the real horse. Tom Thumb had built a sizable lead in the race, but it blew a blower belt, and the horse caught up and beat the locomotive. However, in the bigger picture, as we all know, the locomotive would win. B&O Railroad Management was at the race, of course, and they came away thoroughly impressed with what they saw. And by 1836, the railroad had a dozen locomotives pulling cars. 
Tom Thumb was built by an intriguing historical figure, one Peter Cooper, an American industrialist, inventor, politician, and much more. He'd go on to make a ton of money, a lot of it from his work with locomotives, a glue factory, and an iron foundry. Cooper would donate quite a bit of that fortune to form the Cooper Union in 1859, a private college that is still well-known for its engineering programs, amongst other things. Finally, on August 28, 1898, an elixir would be forever rebranded. Brad's drink had been invented by one Caleb Bradham, a drugstore operator in New Bern, North Carolina. It had attracted a bit of a local following, but Bradham wasn't really feeling the name. Caleb Bradham believed his elixir aided digestion in a similar way that pepsin does, pepsin being the robust enzyme in gastric juice in the stomach. Thus was born Pepsi-Cola. By 1902, the Pepsi-Cola company was incorporated in North Carolina with Caleb Bradham as its president, and the drink really took off. By 1910, there were 240 franchises in 24 states. But Caleb Bradham and Pepsi-Cola Company would go bankrupt in 1923, largely due to the huge rise in the cost of sugar following World War I. It eventually would be bought in 1931 by Loft Candy Company. The new owners had a rough go of it, found it really hard to move product. In fact, it's been reported that the new owners of Pepsi-Cola offered to sell the company to the Coca-Cola company at one point. Coke said no thanks. So the Loft Candy Company decided to give the consumer more. Coca-Cola was selling six ounces of their drink for about a nickel. Pepsi-Cola decided to start selling 12 ounces for the same price. And in doing so, Pepsi-Cola rolled out a radio jingle that would be the first to be broadcast coast to coast here in the States. In fact, the Nickel Nickel campaign would be named one of the most effective ads of the 20th century by advertising age. The company had found its footing. Today, PepsiCo Incorporated is a large public company with about 267,000 employees and revenues in 2019 of about $67 billion. That wraps up our look at the week ahead from a business history standpoint. These stories about pioneering people and technology were a few items that stood out to our team. There were certainly no shortage of big stories during the week of August 24th in business history. But what stands out to you? Tell us. Shoot us a note to Amanda at SupplyChainNowRadio.com. We're here to listen. I hope you've enjoyed our latest edition of This Week in Business History. On that note, be sure to check out a wide variety of industry thought leadership at SupplyChainNowRadio.com. Be sure to check out our some of our newest series, including Tequila Sunrise and Supply Chain is Boring, amongst others. Friendly reminder, you can now find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. Search for it and subscribe so you don't miss a single thing. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, hey, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. And on that note, We'll see you next time on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.